This evening, we'll take the text from Luke chapter 24. So turn to Luke 24. And here we have the capstone to the gospel message itself. We've been working towards this for two years now. So here we are at the gospel message, beginning with verse 1 of Luke 24. Let's stand together and hear God's word. Luke 24, verses 1 through 11. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments, Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest, It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles and their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this good word, this ultimate word, this this gospel message, this good news. Father, we pray for our faith tonight. Increase our faith. That we would believe you and that we would understand more of the implications of this great and powerful work that you did in the raising of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Please bless this message tonight. We pray for your Holy Spirit uh, to bring these words alive in all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We want more people to receive this message, don't we? We we have this vision of thousands of people flooding into the churches and Elizabeth and hearing the gospel message, Uh, but it's us listening to it tonight. It's for us to receive the message ourselves, and I think there is a point at which we, we do need to love God. First, we need to love one another. We need to love the message. We need to, you know, that's got to sink in. It's got to be good news to us if it's going to be good news to anybody else. I think that logic holds. So, so for now, the message comes to us. I guess that's what I'm saying. For now, it's us. It's not the thousands. But at the least, for us, it's good news and, and a hopefully, by God's grace and by the Spirit working in us, better news. And, and the news is so good to us that we would give it to others. So I think that's the first thing, is the news has to be good news uh, for us. And then it comes to others as well. Now this, this, this text presents what happened in matter-of-fact detail. 
That's the first thing that's sort of surprising about God's Word. It doesn't seem esoteric. It doesn't seem like some strange message, but just simply some things that occurred to some women. This, this, this is something that happened to them 2,000 years ago on a Sunday morning. They, they went to this tomb on a Sunday morning, and they tell it to us as they told it to the disciples in this matter-of-fact way. We were at this tomb, we went to find Jesus, and he wasn't there. So that's effectively what they're saying. There's nothing more fancy or extraordinary about the recounting of this message, just simply saying they were there 2,000 years ago. This happened in time and space. This is, this is what happened in history. As, as much as we appeared here tonight in this building, these women were there physically at this tomb, and the tomb was empty. That's it. I don't think there's anything more to say, really. <laughs> they went to the tomb on a Sunday morning, probably around 5 or 6 a.m., and the tomb was empty. This is, I believe, the greatest event in all of human history. You can't decorate it up. You can't add anything more to it. This is the greatest event that has occurred in 6,000 years since the fall of man in the garden. This is the greatest event in human history, and it really happened 2,000 years ago. But it is interesting that the disciples didn't receive this message immediately, and that, I believe, is the thrust of uh, this this passage, especially as we get down into verses 8 through 11, it was in some sense too good to be true, too good to believe. It was the greatest act of power in human history. Not so much the creation of life, although that is powerful. That's amazing to see the creation of a little baby or, you know, something like a, even a puppy or some sort of life. Uh, the temporary resuscitation of life, as in the resuscitation of Lazarus and these other things. Uh, the, these, these are temporary reversals of the death process. But the total and final and forever resurrection to a new life that could never be compromised ever again is truly the greatest event in human history. And that's what makes this so extraordinary. Now, it is important for us to see this and to understand it, hopefully to some more extensive way or intensive way, this is really the object of Paul's ministry, it's the object of our ministry as well, that, that we may know, and that's what Paul brings out in Ephesians chapter 1, that we would know this, so important that we would know it. Again, we talk about epistemology and different levels of knowledge and the, the degree to which things sink in. The first time you get a message, you don't always get the whole thing, and that certainly is the case here as well. That's why Paul says, I, I remember you in my prayers that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. He would know the power, he would experience it, yes, and know more the fullness of the power of God. And I do think to contrast the power of God with the things that we are doing or the things that man does or the influence or impact of man's efforts, man's institutions, uh, there is a distinction between the works of man and the works of God. The power of man and the power of God. 
And hopefully we can all realize that, you know, what God does, when God does something powerful, it is quite a contrast with that which man does. Man does these powerful things, you know, he takes over countries and sends armies into these countries and overwhelms the country and, and then imperialistically uh, controls and, and gathers the control of that country under themselves and so forth. So we see men doing amazing things, great things, uh, works of power, but nothing like what God does. And so the great objective of studying this passage uh, and to meditate upon these things is that somehow the Holy Spirit of God would enable us to know more of the greatness of God's power working in us that raised Christ from the dead. All right, so for tonight, just three points tonight. The first, the facts of the case. The second is the reaction on the part of the women and the disciples. And then thirdly, just a few of the implications from Christ's resurrection. So first, let's look at the facts tonight. The facts is that Jesus died on the cross on Thursday or Friday afternoon. There's there's actually a fair amount of debate over what day of the week Jesus died. Personally, I don't think that matters very much. If he died on Friday, then he was in the grave on Friday, Saturday, and part of Sunday, so that would be a third day. So that's fine. But whatever the case is, Jesus died on the cross. There were three hours of darkness, an earthquake, The temple curtains separating the holiest of holies was ripped from top to bottom. Dead people rose from the dead and walked around Jerusalem. So we we know there was a very significant event that occurred on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that. The darkness, the earthquake, the resurrections that surrounded all of that. And the Roman centurion admitted that Jesus was the very Son of God. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. It's very clear that he died. And how do we know that he died? But, 1 Corinthians 15, that the Word of God stated it, according to the Scriptures, we know that Jesus died on the cross. Now, we we can talk about the sword or the spear that plunged into Jesus' side, pouring blood and water on the ground. And so, There was, of course, the Sabbath. That would have been Saturday. So the entire Saturday, nobody did anything. The women didn't come to the tomb. There wasn't any activity at all until Sunday morning when these women came to the tomb. And at least five women, according to this count, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women. So it had to have been at least five, given that there were other women. So five women, at a minimum, came to the tomb somewhere around five or six in the morning. They had prepared spices to preserve the dead body of Jesus. Some had seen the dead body of Jesus. We don't know how many. We believe that the women had seen the dead body of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, of course, brought Jesus' body into his, his tomb. They saw the large stone installed in front of the tomb, making it impossible for Jesus to have walked out. And there they were at the tomb at five or six in the morning. Now, when they arrived at the tomb, the stone was rolled away. 
and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was not there. Hallelujah. Praise God. Now, the angels then testified to his resurrection. So how do we know of his resurrection? Well, we know it for lots of reasons. The prophecies, the, the scriptures themselves, Jesus' statement, and the eyewitnesses, as well as the angels' testimony. The angels testified here that Jesus had risen. Why are you searching for the living among the dead? So here you are at a tomb. There's no sense in looking around for living people inside of tombs. So why are you looking for a a live person, a living person, one who is walking around, breathing and and engaging and conversing, etc.? Why would you look for the living among the dead? That was the question the angels asked of these women. Now, let's watch the reactions. The women were alarmed, they were amazed, and they trembled. We read that in the passage tonight. Then as they were afraid, verse 5, and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? That's the angels asking the question. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And then they told these things to the apostles. In verse 11, their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to take just a little bit of time and consider these reactions to the resurrection of Jesus. Over a period of eight days at least, possibly more than that, some of the disciples did not believe that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Now, it is true this is a very big story with very big implications. It was going to rearrange the perspective of the nature of the kingdom, the nature of the new life that Christ would initiate in us, the power of God over every enemy, and the eternality of our lives in Christ. So that That's a realignment of paradigms. We like to talk about paradigm shifts. It's sometimes difficult for people to to gain something of a paradigm shift. That's to wake up to a new reality. So in some respects, I understand why they had a hard time coming to grips with this reality. A paradigm shift is described as a radical change in thinking from an accepted point of view to a new one, necessitated when new scientific discoveries produce anomalies in the current paradigm. So that's, it's typically used for science. So scientists occasionally, they say there are these massive paradigm shifts that occur in history where all of the chemistry books and all of the biology books or physics books have to be rewritten because There's new evidence, or people have come to new knowledge concerning the field of science, and because there is so much uh, of a shift in understanding of this particular field, all of the textbooks have to be rewritten because of that. That's called a paradigm shift. It's a shift in our perception of reality, a shift in the fundamental interpretive network or system by which we consider all reality, all of history, and the future. So that's what's known as a paradigm shift. 
take a, an example of a woman whose husband was lost at sea for 12 years. She's been raising her children alone for a very long time. Somehow he finds his way to a deserted island, back to the mainland. He hitchhikes home and knocks on the door. After 12 years, I'm home. It's me. What does she say? How does she react? The implications for how life is going to change immediately flashes before her. Everything's going to be different from this time forward. Her husband has come back from the dead. That's a paradigm shift. And that's what these disciples are coming face to face with. And brothers and sisters, I think all of us have to as well. When we come to the realization that Jesus is risen from the dead, it's a paradigm shift in our minds, our hearts, and it will realign all of our thinking and all of our life. All right, let's talk about their response. They doubted. But why did they doubt? Part of it is the letdown. The worst possible scenario as far as they were concerned had come about from their perspective of things. The Messiah was dead. I want you to think about that for a moment. The Messiah was dead. Now, perhaps they had not read Psalm 16 and Psalm 22 and Psalm 110. Maybe they weren't thinking in terms of the the last few verses of Isaiah 53 and on into Isaiah 66. Perhaps they hadn't thought about some of that. But the Messiah was dead. Israel had waited for the Messiah for 1,800 years. and, And these men believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But here he was, his limp, tortured, wounded, dead body had been taken down from the cross and laid in a grave. Then they had gone through at least 36 hours of excruciating silence, no resurrection. The reality of the death of the Messiah was sinking in over that period of time. The crushed expectations. Of course, they had the wrong expectations. Certainly, many of the disciples, if not all of them, were thinking in terms of a military Messiah or a political Messiah of sorts. Jesus rode into town on a donkey's colt, hoping that perhaps someday he would graduate to a donkey or perhaps even a mule. His political and military might was maybe at some point collecting a little bit more force. Maybe he wasn't quite at the point where he'd ride into Jerusalem on a chariot, but you know, it, it, it just didn't appear that he was going to be quite the king that they had expected him to do, especially upon his crucifixion. But here's the problem. They had the wrong set of expectations. Their expectations were way too low. Jesus came to deal not with Rome specifically, but with an enemy 100,000 times more powerful and more significant than the puny Roman tyranny. Secondly, they didn't believe his word. They had doubted his promises. He had promised he would rise from the dead on the third day. You would think that disciples would have been expecting it, or at least one disciple would have expected this to happen. They had known about it for at least six months, the last six months of his ministry with his disciples. The teaching had come about on multiple occasions. We have references to it throughout the Gospels. Uh, but, you know, it's possible he would have mentioned it 20, 30, 40 times. Matthew 16, 21, for example, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. 
and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. So he began to tell them of that at some point in his ministry. And so to read that he began to talk about it uh, indicates to me that he continued to talk about it for a period of time. Moreover, this is the most interesting thing about, about all of this is that everybody seemed to know about his announcements. Apparently, it was fairly common knowledge because in Matthew 27, 62 to 64, we find that the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, knew something about his prognostication concerning his own resurrection. Listen to this, Matthew 27, 62, on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said after three days I will rise therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people he has risen from the dead so, so there it is the predictions by Jesus of his resurrection had become common knowledge at this point in time and yet somehow his disciples had forgotten about it we read here that the women had forgotten about it they evidently remembered the words of Jesus when the angels reminded them of it in verse, uh, verses 7 and 8, uh, but the disciples had either forgotten about it or they didn't believe it or, of course, a little bit of both. So they didn't believe the Word of God. They doubted the promises. Then thirdly, they doubted God's goodness. They doubted the magnitude of God's goodness. If somebody was to email you and say, I'm going to give you $10 billion tomorrow, you would probably not believe it. And I suppose it depends on who would tell you that. If Jesus told you that, that'd be one thing. But if any person told you that, you might not believe it. Now, most often, the reason why you would not believe it is because we're not used to good news. We're just not used to good news. We live in a world of bad news. We live in a sinful world where, what do they say? The only two things certain are death and taxes. That, that's kind of depressing. Think about that. Like, oh, I get taxed and then I die. Oh, great, wonderful. That just, that's a rather depressing thought. Uh, but that's the world we live in. We live in a world where we're just not used to good news. People are coping. They, they understand the something about the fact they're going to die and they, they see the negative things going on all around you. They just read the news. They, they see these things and they just barely cope. They barely get by. Maybe the best news they have is that, you know, we're going to have a six-pack of beer tonight. So, okay, that's great. And then tomorrow morning it's the hangover and so forth. But it's just not a very, not a world where there's all that much good news. And here we find the promised Messiah was dead. And now what tends to happen with us is when things go from bad to worse to even worse, what, what, what happens to us? What's, what's your tendency? Well, it reminds me of the story of the country boy who joins the military and attends jumping school. And the, the master tells the young man, okay, now here's how it works. You jump out of the plane, count to ten, Pull the first ripcord. If that doesn't open, pull the second ripcord, and there'll be a pickup truck down below to pick you up when you, when you come down. So he pulls the first cord, jumps out, pulls the first cord, nothing happens. Pulls the second ripcord, nothing happens. 
Then he says to himself, and I suppose that pickup truck won't be there to pick me up either. And that's the way we think, isn't it? Okay, if if this has gone wrong and that has gone wrong and things have gone from bad to worse to even worse, what do you think is going to happen tomorrow? That seems to be the perspective, isn't it, of the pessimist. But this is a giving way to the conclusion that God can't or God won't salvage all of this. It is a lapse of faith and hope. And brothers and sisters, we're not to fall into this, but because men are sinners and we're under the curse by nature, under condemnation, the the feeling that comes to a dead and dying world, easy to think negatively, much easier to think negatively than it is to think positively. It's easier to believe the bad news than it is to believe the good news. Now, most people don't even believe the bad news about themselves. It's really hard to do, but... But to believe the good news is even harder. So there is oftentimes the Rhoda moment. You remember when the people of God were praying for Peter's release from prison. Lord, please let Peter go free. Please, oh God. Please, oh please, oh please. The knock comes on the door. Rhoda goes down there, checks on the door. It's Peter. She slams the door back, says, just a ghost. Ghost of Peter. Okay. Just for some reason, it's just hard to receive the good news. But we are called to the faith of Abraham. He believed in God who gives life to the dead. I love this passage from Romans 4. He believed in God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Who contrary to hope, in hope, believed so that he became the father of many nations. In other words, against all the the evidences to the other position, he, he received more bad news and more bad news. And even more bad news, none of which would confirm the promise, but in the face of every hopeless, negative report, Abraham still believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations. So in the dark moments on Saturday night, we are still called to believe, to hope, to think. To think. To think about what? To think about God. What would God do in such a case? Think about the goodness of God. What would God do? Based upon everything you know about God, do you think He would allow His Holy One to see corruption? For example, would God keep His promises? Was Jesus right when he said confidently, I will rise from the dead on the third day? So to think about what he says, to think about his promises, and most importantly, to think about the nature of God. Would we doubt the infinite goodness of God while sitting in the darkness? Would we doubt the very essence of God's nature? What is God? God is good. God is the very essence of all that is good. Would we doubt that, brothers and sisters? Even as we sit at midnight on Saturday night, are we still going 
to doubt the goodness of God or to doubt His Word. To doubt God's essential nature is nothing short of irrationality and unbelief. So ask yourself again, could God fail? Can God fail? Will God fail? Is it possible that sin will abound and grace will not abound much more? Is it possible that judgment is going to conquer mercy? Peter had confessed it, didn't he? In Matthew 16, what did he say? He'd already said it. He said, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. The word Christ means Messiah. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He, he believed that. He said it was his confession. Who is Jesus? He said, who am I? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But the question posed is this. Will the Messiah fail? Will the rain that has promised the Messiah stop in A.D. 33 because of the crucifixion? That's the question. Will the Messiah fail to rise from the dead? Will the living God allow His dead Son, if He is the Son of the living God, kind of follow this through a little bit, if He is the Son of the living God, would the living God, the source of all life, allow His dead Son To rot in the grave. Does that make any sense to you? Now, I think the issue with Peter or anybody else is that he just hasn't thought through this very well. Tends to be the way it is. That's why I say the first thing is to think it through. Spend some time thinking about it. Meditate upon the promises of God. Consider these things. Will the curse of death be the last word such that there will be no resurrection? Hey, the Pharisees believed in the future resurrection. But what about the Messiah? Will the Messiah rise from the dead? The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Will the disciples believe in the resurrection? Well, let's move on. Fourthly, the fourth reason why they doubted, they they did not remember his words. We get this here that the, the women themselves recalled the words of Jesus when the angels nudged them on this. Don't you remember what he said? He said he would rise from the dead on the third day. That's all, you know, I think I probably would ah, you're right. <laughs> why did I forget that, you know? Well, why did they forget it? Well, because we are a forgetful people. We just are, for some reason. And, of course, the God of this world is blinding our eyes. There's a lot of things, a lot of factors that play in, especially in the spiritual realm. Uh, that's why, brothers and sisters, it's for us to keep the message in front of us at all times, We have to remember it. They forgot the mighty works of God, and that's why they turned into apostasy in Psalm 78. You you know all of the references to to remembering, so much to remember. Jesus wants us to remember him by the celebration of the Lord's table on Sundays. But they forgot. Again, I think it's quite remarkable that the Jewish leaders remembered his words, but his disciples did not. And again, I think there's a spiritual element going going on here. Move on. They doubted his power, the power of God, already displayed in the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, again, this seems somewhat irrational to to see the the resurrection life of God functioning in the resurrections of Lazarus. Lazarus was in the grave longer than Jesus was, right? Wasn't it four days? So so there's a, a degree of rotting that's about ready to take place 
there with the body of Lazarus, and yet we see the power of the Son of God in the healing of thousands and raising the dead. Here's, here's Jesus defying the laws of nature at every point, healing a man at 20 miles away, walking on water, commanding the winds and the waves. You think there would have been a possibility of his resurrection? You know, again, to think rationally about this, to just the same issue, you know, when they panicked in, in, the, in the boat, they, they weren't studying the loaves. They hadn't remembered the loaf. And again, they weren't remembering. They, they weren't able to remember. Lazarus raised, was it on Monday? Trying to remember the day of the week, it was, it was pretty close to the resurrection or the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, at least within a week, max two weeks. So they had witnessed all of this and yet somehow forgot the power of God manifested in the, midst, in the ministry of Jesus. And then here, finally, they doubted the power and love of God the Father for His Son. Uh, Psalm 16 and verse 10 is the key verse there again. He would not sit and watch His Son Rot in the grave for seven days, seven months, or seven years. Everything pointed to a resurrection on that Sunday morning. There should have been 5,000 people staying up all night. There should have been 100,000 people gathered around the tomb on Sunday morning. But what we see is a couple of women coming to check on him, bringing spices to further embalm his dead body for the burial. So, brothers and sisters, as for us to stand before the open grave and sing, Christ the Lord is risen today, every day. And join 2.2 billion Christians around the globe with this celebration on any given Sunday. So in conclusion, implications of Christ's resurrection. Here are some of the implications. Number one, I referred to this briefly at the beginning of the message. This is the gospel message to take to the ends of the earth. This is it. This is the good news. By the way, I just did the first search I've ever done of the book of Acts. Because I really, I wanted to understand what was the message these apostles took around Asia Minor and around the world. What was it that turned the world upside down? What was it? And so I did a search, a word search for dying on the cross, dead, death, etc. versus resurrection. And I found, listen to this, 22 references to Jesus' resurrection in the book of Acts and three references to his death. I had no idea that was the ratio, but I, I think that's really instructive. What does this mean? This means that the good news is good news. The good news is that Jesus is risen from the dead. This is a message of victory, of, of triumph, of the conquering of our Savior over the enemies of sin and death. So the overall tone of our message must be triumph. A sense that we have got the victory and we are gaining the victory and we will have the victory in Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's it. I think that's the tone that, you know, is that, is that me? Is that you enough? Day by day, Monday morning, Tuesday morning, it's a message of optimism. It's the catalyst to our eternal hope. Instead of being of all men most miserable, we become of all men most optimistic. Under the most dire circumstances, we can hope in the best possible outcome. Here's another implication. Let me put it in the form of a question. What would you do if you knew that you had eternal life right now? 
would you do if, if, if you realized that you have eternal life right now? And I believe that's what John 3, 16 and 17 tells us. That you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will have eternal life. Present tense. You will have it. But what would you do if you knew that you had eternal life? If you knew that death was of no concern whatsoever in your life, what would you do if you knew that you were impervious to the assaults, I don't know, of the cartel in Mexico, the the forces of ISIS in Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan? What would you do if you knew that you were impervious to the assault of the demons from hell, and you were headed towards imminent resurrection, and in fact, you already held the guarantee of eternal life. Again, how would that affect your life? How would you live your life differently tomorrow, given you have that full assurance and that solid knowledge of that fact? How would you spend this temporal, temporary life if you knew that you already had eternal life? You can say with the apostle, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. And for this reason, brothers and sisters, last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, my beloved brethren, now be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, forasmuch as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This will render so much productivity perseverance, acting more and more in faith, offering more and more of yourself as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. You see the implications coming. And then, of course, we ourselves have access to the same resurrection power we were, Romans 6, buried with him by baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life a sense of your life, a sense of the power of God working in you, that immeasurable greatness of his power towards us according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now this power is accessible to you and to me. The power is working within you and within me. So to, 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 to be able to walk in newness of life, in resurrection life, to mortify your sinful flesh, to consider yourself now dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. These are the beautiful implications of this great doctrine. May the Lord just impress these things upon us. May the Spirit animate these, these truths in your life and mine this week. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we exalt in the great resurrection story. Indeed, this happened in time and space. Indeed, Christ is risen, and the implications are that we will rise too. Father, increase our faith. May we not be doubtful of the great goodness of God, the power of God, the love of God, the truthfulness of God. Father, you are true to your promises. May we never doubt you. May we be very hopeful. May we have the spirit of the Apostle Paul who can say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. May we say these words every day and act them out. Father, give us that grace, that faith, 
that courage each and every day. We pray this in the name of our conquering Savior, Jesus. Amen.